Paracast, with your hosts Gene Steinberg and David Bietti. This episode of the Paracast is brought to you by Audible.com. Download a free audiobook of your choice today at audiblepodcast.com slash Paracast. That's audiblepodcast.com slash Paracast. And now, on with the show. This week on the Paracast, we're going to try something a little unusual, a little strange. We're going to have our very first super wonderful listener roundtable. We decided that it was time to get our audience involved in the discussion, not just on the forums, which is where all of these fine people have met each other virtually, but um, here on the show as well. We're going to go down a little list of who we've got here, and what I'll do is I'll mention their screen name on the form and their first name, no last names here, to protect the innocent and the guilty. We have Farusha, who goes under Farusha. Hello, Farusha. Hi, David. And Farusha is very brave in that she's the only female on today's panel, on today's roundtable. So you're going to have your work cut out for you, Farusha, and that we're all going to be grabbing the remote. <laughs> and, uh, I'm sure you'll do fine asserting yourself. Next, we have Michael, who goes under the name Skylar on the forums. Hey, Michael. Hello. How are you guys? We're doing good. Howdy, Skylar. Hi, Michael. And and now everybody, see now, now this is like the the Walton the Walton family show. Good night, Tom. Good night, boy. Grandma. Good night, <laughs> Grandma. Good night. <laughs> but uh, Skyler is one of my favorite participants on the forums, and I'm absolutely thrilled he's here today. Next up, we have Mark, who goes under the name Dusty on the forums. Hi, everybody. Howdy, Mark. Yeah, good to meet you. We're going to be doing this. This is going to be interesting. Yeah, let's just get it all over with at once. Yeah, just yeah. Do one big howdy. All right. Yeah, you're right. Uh, then we have uh, John, who's skunky on the forums. Hey, John. How you doing there, Dave? Alrighty, not bad. And we have uh, Brandon D. on the forums, who's Brandon in real life. Right, Brandon? Yes. All right. Excellent. And uh, that is the rather intense roundtable participants list. Um, if you so- read the entries, by the way, on the forums, you'll find these people are all very intense people. And they have some very, very strong opinions about a whole lot of things. And I'm going to throw out something, David, that I thought would start something, and we really don't know what it's going to start. But you know, as for example, every year or two, in response to some kind of UFO conference or something, we read all over again, Edgar Mitchell believes UFOs are real. Now, we've been hearing this for how many years now? 20 years, 30 years, every year, every two years. Does anybody have an opinion as to whether this means anything or whether the media is stuck in a rut? Michael, why don't you start with a comment? I've been hearing this for uh, at least since 1998, that Edra Mitchell believes something, and occasionally somebody like CNN will say so, and I just don't think it means anything anymore. It'll just uh, uh, peak for a couple of days, and then it will disappear like it always has. Those who think that this is some sort of revelation haven't been paying attention, I don't think. And uh, I think it's basically worthless at this point. In the old days in the press, they used to have something called the morgue. You know, that is, of course, where they keep all the records of prior stories. So, of course, when you do a story, you go to the morgue and you do research. Now, of course, you use Google. Evidently, CNN doesn't know what Google is. Well, CNN puts down all sorts of um, things on the paranormal. Uh, many of uh, Kieran Chetri, particularly, uh, is very critical of the paranormal. 
Uh-huh. Well, it turns out that when CNN does a news report on any of these topics, they usually do instantly bring in the curtain of laughter. It's almost as if that was some sort of policy on the part of CNN, or just even on the part of the mainstream media. And I've always found it to be very interesting. I mean, they'll talk about religion seriously, but they won't talk about any paranormal topics in any kind of a serious fashion. Whenever we hear UFOs, they invariably throw in the term little green men. And uh, it's very frustrating. It's one of the reasons that we do the Paracast. It's to try to have uh, some sort of reasonable conversation about these things without instantly turning to laughter. But it almost seems like, the whole, especially when you talk about things like UFOs, it seems like the whole topic is poisonous at this point uh, if you try to bring it to the mainstream media. And I'm wondering, I mean, and, and I'm curious with a number of you, obviously you come to the Paracast forums to discuss these things, but... How do you find talking about these topics with other people who maybe are family and friends and are normally not interested in this? Or do you, like, avoid these topics completely with art? I, at the moment, am in a peculiar frame of mind. Firstly, uh, I'll get to that in a moment. But day to day, I'm in a strange place mentally at the moment. Um, ultimately, my, my father died last Monday. Uh, and I kind of, as, as you can understand, I'm in a kind of a strange mental state at the moment. Um, but uh, historically, personally, I, I have not ever felt any, any need to disguise my true feelings about what I've experienced and my opinions on any topic to do with uh, the paranormal. And my, my education on, in anything uh, in this field is, uh, I have read many books since childhood, often from my father, uh, that he had lying around, books that you would all know, things like uh, stuff by Berlitz, Charles Berlitz, you know, The Philadelphia Experiment, and uh, I think von Danakin, um, Lyle Watson, much of that. Um, a lot of stuff, like, like, like Colin Wilson, I remember a book, uh, Mechanics of the Mind, for instance. So from a very early age, from about nine, I was kind of reading that kind of thing from the, the, the bookshelf and aware of that world. My reason for that, it may, may be a little strange for a child of that age to, to read in and have an interest in that kind of uh, topic, but because of what was going on around me and our family at the time, it was uh, of obvious interest. So I was... Uh, primed at an early age to have an interest and and I guess ever since then I've never personally had any difficulty talking about it and kicking it around and I currently I I think I'm I'm not the best person to ask maybe because I have no problem talking about it. I I see the difficulty people have with the topic and uh, see the difficulty with uh, the media and its level of seriousness with anything to do with this and but whatever agenda that is behind that uh, we can all kick that around for sure <laughs> but uh, my, my opinions uh, change with the wind quite honestly and I find flexibility with the whole thing and not sticking to any sort of dogmatic attitude is, is more helpful for myself Okay. Brandon, what about you? Do you talk about this stuff with friends and family? Um, definitely not with my family. They're, uh, they're all pretty strong Christians, and I, I don't think they would even really acknowledge <laughs> that any sort of thing like this would go on. It would sort of be, if I brought it up, just sort of maybe a smile and nod or something like that. We have a, we have a pleasant relationship, but it's definitely not 
any sort of thing where we talk about these kind of subjects. I don't think I really have a problem talking about it. It's more just I never sort of volunteer it. If somebody were to come to me and ask me, I'd surely talk with them about it. Mm -hmm. John? I don't really talk about it much with my family, but I do have... We have spoken about it briefly, but it's, it's, it's an uncomfortable topic it seems like amongst family um i have other family members that have had that's pretty strange things happen to them and but you know we've talked about it as much as it took to communicate that something weird happened but never really you know had had a had a long discussion about it as far as with friends yeah i'm kind of that wacky guy that talks about ufos all the time sometimes <laughs> too much i kind of my girlfriend gets mad at me about it sometimes, but I'm kind of like way beyond the is something going on, and I'm really obsessed with figuring out what is going on because I mean I, I've been up close to some of these things, and I'd like to know what's going on because it uh, it'll drive you nuts not talking about it. <laughs> I uh, I can really relate to that feeling. Now I, I recently with my girlfriend got to spend an afternoon talking with Barusha. And, uh, and I'm wondering, Farusha, what's your response to that question I'm posing to everybody? You kind of play in a slightly different sandbox. Indeed. Uh, <laughs> so um, let's just talk about the UFO topic. I mean, did you grow up in a situation where, like, with your parents or with family and friends, this was discussed, or was this something that was in well, I think that um, with my family, I, have a I had a very small family, basically my mother and my father. And my father was extremely psychic in a variety of ways. Uh, he um, knew things ahead of time. Every time he would go down to the Jersey Shore, the first money he put on a wheel, he would always win. Uh, he saw dead people. And uh, I try not to see dead people. Uh, although I do sometimes end up communicating with them. Uh, my mother, on the other hand, um, was a believer. She went to spiritualists with my grandmother and my godmother, my aunt. And uh, so I guess I grew up in a, a situation where it was very, very much accepted. Um, I, I, I have problems with the word belief because it impl sometimes it implies more than it means. Please expand on that idea that belief has well, for me. belief kind of to me indicates that you know you're just blindly having faith in something that um, uh, you have no basis for. Uh, people will say, "Do you believe in flying saucers or do you believe in UFOs?" And uh, uh, you know, it's not a matter of believing in them. It's a matter if you have evidence, if you've seen a UFO yourself and so forth. It's it's not just a belief. A belief could be maybe that you believe that it's probable that there's other life in the universe. That would be a belief. I believe it's probable there's other life in the universe, but there's no point in believing in UFOs in the, in the sense that I mean. Am I making myself clear? I think absolutely. It's funny. When people ask me if I believe in UFOs, my standard response to is I look at them and I say, do you believe in cars? Precisely. What? I said, well, you know, do you believe in cars? And they'll say, well, yeah, there's one that's going by right now outside the window. And I'll go, well, once you've seen a couple or a few UFOs, that question will have that same meaning to you.
Hey, neighbors. As we said, this episode of the PowerCast is being brought to you by Audible.com, and you can download a free audiobook of your choice. And you can select from over 40,000 audiobooks and lots, lots more featuring bestsellers about the paranormal, about UFOs, novels. You pick it, and when you get the book that you want, just download to your Apple iPod or over 400 other devices. All right. You can download your free audiobook today, today at audiblepodcast.com slash powercast. That's audiblepodcast.com slash powercast. This offer only good for USA listeners. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at the powercast.com. That's news at the powercast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. Are you ready to order the official Paracast t-shirt? You asked. We answered. We're now taking orders for the official Paracast t-shirt. It comes in white, 100% cotton. The front of it features the same logo that we have on our community forums. On the back it says, separating signal from noise. It's just $14.95 plus shipping in your choice of sizes. To order the official Paracast t-shirt, here's all you have to do. Visit our new online store at store.theparacast.com. One more time, that's store.theparacast.com. You can use a major credit card or PayPal to place your order for the official Paracast t-shirt. Hi, this is Bud Hopkins, and you're listening to The Paracast with Gene Steinberg, David Jedney, and I completely, enthusiastically endorse this program. It's an absolutely great program with an opportunity to stretch out and talk. David, before we believe in cars, before we believe in airplanes, and before we believe in television sets, we do believe that we're talking to Farusha, Mark, Brandon, John, and Michael, and having a special listeners roundtable. Well, I thought you were going to say, do you believe in Beatles? I believe in all kinds of Beatles. It's a little John Lennon reference there, but whatever. Okay, it was, I think, lost on you, Gene. <laughs> Nothing is lost on me. I came within one day, ladies and gentlemen, I came within one day of talking to John Lennon. Cool. John Lennon saw a UFO on my birthday. Gene? Mm-hmm. And I just got to tell you this one. I'm full of these, by the way. Um, I used to own one of George Harrison's uh, tour jackets, um, and I sold it at an auction for one pound. <laughs> Why? Um, because I didn't know it was his at the time. I found out later. Um, oh, that hurts. <laughs> it does, yeah. <laughs> uh, may I ask a question to Farusha? You, uh, um, yeah, I was wondering with your family how it seems like they both had sort of a psychic history. Is this some sort of thing that passed down your family? Like maybe your grandparents seemed to have some sort of ability, and was it? Did it seem to be a generational sort of thing? I didn't know my father's parents that well. In fact, my father's father had passed away before I was born. Uh, my father's mother um, never intimated to me that she had psychic abilities. However, she died when I was seven. So that 
you know, didn't work out real well. Uh, my grandmother, as I had mentioned, my maternal grandmother would go with my mother to um, spiritualists. Um, and uh, my grandfather also died when I was young, my, my maternal grandfather. So it was only my grandmother that I became semi-adult uh, had semi-adult conversations with, and she did, in fact, uh, tell me some folkloric things about um, about her, you know, her Bavarian uh, Schwabian background, um, where um, her mother had, I think, six children, but two of them died rather quickly, and one of them she was holding. This is I'm talking about my great grandmother now. She was holding her young son. Um, who was quite ill in a Bavarian cottage somewhere near Stuttgart. And um, there was a knock on the door. And she put the baby down. And she went to the door and she opened the door and no one was there. And when she came back, the baby was dead. Um, my grandmother regaled me with that sort of uh, stuff. That's pretty intense. Uh, you know, hence the silence. People, I think, are processing that. Um, I'm trying to untangle a microphone cord. So oh, what they're doing, by the way, ladies and gentlemen, is they're either processing it or untangling their mic cords. Better than untangling an umbilical cord, I suppose. <laughs> no, that, that, that's pretty heavy. That's um, what we do on next week's episode, by the way. Well, I know that I've mentioned on the show that, I think I've mentioned on the show that my mother was someone who had some rather intense psychic abilities. And, and I came to believe that that kind of had a detrimental effect on her mental health because it, it, it was so hard for her to handle uh, that she, she her whole life was basically colored by it and it became a thing where I think it really, it, it messed with her mind. And I'm wondering how do all of you feel about the idea that exposing yourself to this topic, or these topics I should say, in any way is potentially bad for your mental health? Michael, What's your response to something like that? Well, my mother was a uh, was somewhat psychic, and she confided a number of uh, instances to me. I don't think that really affected her health particularly. But back to the idea of what other people think about this stuff, which I didn't get to address. My house is kind of odd. My house is full of UFO books and uh, books on psychic phenomena and books on religion. There are alien statues, alien heads up on the bookshelves. There's pictures of UFOs on the wall, and nobody will talk about them. It's like when people come over, they look at the books and they say nothing. It's not quite that they are whistling past the graveyard. It's like they take an active disinterest in the subject and don't ever bring it up. And I think that is just extremely odd. And it's to the point where I simply don't discuss these kinds of things with anybody else because of their active disinterest. So uh, the only place I can talk about them really is on the Paracast. And I've related a couple of those things uh, that have happened to my mother and myself on, on the forums over the last few months. But mentally, I, I think people that are open to this kind of thing are, tend to be, tend to be uh, more creative. Uh, they're not uh, dyed-in-the-wool rationalists who are extroverts and worried about the next meeting they're going to. They're actually people who are uh, actively seeking. And in that sense, uh, they don't necessarily fit into the world as the world would like us to fit in. So that, uh, yeah, they're prob we're probably all mentally unstable. <laughs> well, one can make the argument that people across the world have some level of 
inherent mental instability because what's the reference point, right? What's the control? Who's saying? Getting back to what Skylar was saying about people actively ignoring this, that is probably the most frightening experience I've had is pulling over on the side of Highway 35 and looking at a giant cigar-shaped UFO and I was literally standing in a lane in the middle of the road pointing at it, trying to get drivers by to look at it. And they would look at it, and then they would look back at me like I was the one that was crazy and keep driving. And my girlfriend was in the car with me. She looked at it, and I'm like, do you see this? And she says, yeah, but it's like it's making her angry that I'm asking her. And she still to this day won't talk about it and gets angry when I bring it up. That's well, no. whenever I really started freaking out over this deal. I thought it was all cool there for a while. I was like, yeehaw, UFOs. But that was like a Matrix moment where I'm like, is everybody on the planet somehow mind-controlled by these things? Give us some background on this. So when did this happen? Give us some details. Cause that's this would have been probably around 90, about 96, 97. It's in uh, South Texas. We were leaving Houston. Uh, and we're on Highway 35 heading south, and um, I think we're around a little town called Danbury where there's a lot of open rice pastures and what have you. And as we were driving up to it, I, I saw lights ahead, and there's a hobby airport was behind us about 40 miles maybe, and I was thinking this plane is awful low for the, to be this far out from the airport. And as we're driving up and driving up, um, I'm like, holy cow, this, is this plane fixing a crash? And then there's another holy cow moment about 10 seconds later when I realized that thing's not moving at all. And uh, so I drove up to, you know, to where I could, was like straight beside it and pulled up on the side of the road. It was maybe six or 800 yards out, just hovering over a cow pasture. It had two bright, uh, like, cubing-type lights on each end pointing down at the ground. And then on top of it, there were... Uh, in the center, there were two small flashing lights that kind of looked like the lights you would see on a on a commercial jet. Hmm. Um, and um, I'm just standing here looking at this thing, and a car's coming by, and I, I'm just like, holy cow. And this isn't the first UFO I've seen, but it's the only one I've ever seen in the daytime. Uh, how long? It, it seems different than the other ones I've seen, too. This one had a really ominous kind of a presence to it. It scared me. The other one, the, I've seen other UFOs. The first time I've seen them, I thought it was cool. I wanted to take a ride. I was like, holy cow, that's cool. Well, well, now, hold, hold on, John. Just step back for a moment. So you saw this thing driving in the car. You pulled over to get out of the car and get a better look at it. Well, yeah, I pulled over to where it was just right there, just out over a pasture, just sitting there hovering. About how far away from it was it from you? I would estimate about six to 600 to 800 yards would be a fair guess. I, mean, I didn't have my tape measure with me, but... About a half a mile, more or less. Less than a half mile. You mean feet, not yards? So I'm, I'm taking it to be about a half a mile. It, it, it was uh, not more than a half mile. It was okay. very clear. So you're watching this thing. It's hovering. Your girlfriend's sitting in the car... Mm -hmm. Looking at it, looking at you. No, she wouldn't look at it. She was looking straight, and she was like, she was angry at me for pulling over. Well, that's awfully curious. Hmm. Yeah, tell me about it. How how did this end? I mean, did the thing basically? Whenever people and, uh, after about ten minutes um, of standing there looking at it, and I tried to flag down three cars, and they would slow down to see why I was flagging them down, and I would point out at this thing, and they would look at it, and then just drive off. And, um, but they were seeing it. That's the point. They were seeing it, but maybe ignoring it. 
I don't know if they were seeing it or not. Maybe that they were looking in the direction I was pointing. You know, I'm like I'm like that crazy guy at the end of a uh, invasion of the body snatchers that gets hit by the car. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe they couldn't see it. I'm reminded of a story. Uh, I forget where I read this, and I don't know how they know. But the idea is that when the first ships came over from Europe, uh, the Indians on shore couldn't see the ships at all yeah, I've heard that because also. it was yeah so beyond their belief structure that they couldn't see it and it took the medicine man the shaman guy to say if they looked really hard they could see where these strange white men were coming from that there were actually ships on the bay and it strikes me as to be a just parallel to what uh, you're saying John is that people just don't have the belief structure to see what you could see because you're open to it well that also creates the theory here that we are in a sense in control subconsciously of the UFO experience that maybe we even alter it. This is what John uh, Keel had suggested. We are altering what we see to make it understandable to us. Sorry, uh, it sounds like a, uh, an incident that happened to me where I, I'll, I'll get to that in a minute, where I, I basically um, saw something, this was an, a, a, a night and uh, was driving back from a friend's house with my wife and daughter. Um, saw uh, what I what, well, it was a new car to me, and there were no street lights on the road. And I kept seeing a, a thing flashing across the screen. Some sort of I thought, what, what is this? Is this smoke? Is this something? Is there a fire somewhere? Like you know, because it was dim. And then I thought, oh no, it must be. Maybe it's the lights reflecting from the speedometer which it wasn't, um, and I, I didn't say anything. I drove a little further, and it kept happening, and I thought, well, that is strange. And so I, I mentioned it to my wife. I said, look, are you, are you seeing this? Like, look at the window. And she saw it as well. And then as we came out from under a bunch of trees, it opened out a little to uh, fields, and there were cars passing. I mean, it was fairly late at night, but there were a few cars around going both directions. And... As I as it came out to, to, to the open land, I, I could I followed with my eyes this this beam of light going across. The, it was a beam of light, if you will, going across the screen, and then followed where it would go across the road to the field, and it was in the, well above the field, and it was a, a circulating array of lights, much like a clock face. There were twelve of them around a central single light, and. Uh, I couldn't believe my eyes, and it was, and uh, the, I, I didn't say anything, and carried, carried on driving, and watched it move around because it did move around, but it was basically tracking the car, or it, it felt like it was tracking the car, and I, I was so flabbergasted, I, I then raised my voice to my wife and said, "Look, look, look at that now, over there now," which she did, and she saw it, and it's like, "What on earth is it?" You know, and. Um, Eventually, I, I pulled over to the side of the road, got out of the car, and she, much to her annoyance, she was screaming at me not to get out of the car, but I did, and uh, stood at the side of the road, and cars passed, and I, I pointed at it. The cars slowed, they looked, and carried on. But, I, I, like you, I was utterly flabbergasted at the reaction of the people. All I would, in that situation, putting it down to exactly what you said about being like, that. hey, look at that crazy guy standing there pointing in the field and oh yeah there is something there but oh it's late I need to go to bed and I just can't be bothered and you don't know well certainly in this probably to get on watch know. American Idol or something 
Yeah, you never know. You don't know what's going through their heads. I'm not shooting you down because ultimately, with the, the ultimate end of this tale, is that I stood for longer and watched these lights move around like you, probably about, well, no, not actually that far, about 300, 300 feet away from me. Mm -hmm. uh, rotating, uh, I guess the, the diameter of it would have been about 30 to 40 feet. And then it zipped away across the field, and I was like, "Man, this is this is not right. This is this is just not. I can't believe what is going on." And I am standing here. I hadn't been drinking. I was perfectly straight, and this was happening. And my wife was shouting at me to get in the car, so I watched it for a little longer, and then watched it move across the fields, and then get, went out of sight. I then get back in the car, drive up the road. As it is, it terminates near the M11. And as I just, just went under the, the sort of road underneath that, uh, it comes out onto another strip of road where there is a, uh, a facility. It's the Human Genome Campus. It's just outside, I think it's in a place called Sawston near Cambridge. And as I passed, I slowed down obviously because there's like a miniature roundabout and looked, just looked in the gateway there and there were a bunch of about half a dozen people with a, a laser basically a laser firing this off into the distance but what, mm -hmm. what did what was strange about that was that where I was picking up on it the geology geography wouldn't have allowed that beam to be where it was at the time I mean in, physically it must have been because that's that's what I saw so there is it's a funny story is what I'm saying but as far as reactions of other people is I think really in many cases it probably is the fact that yeah they're seeing it but they're just like got other things on their mind. <laughs> so maybe they don't take UFOs very seriously. Business travel is a profitability killer, you know that. So do more and travel less with GoToMeeting, the easiest, most affordable online meeting service. With just a click launch sales presentations, training sessions, product demos, or collaborative sessions right from your desk. GoToMeeting is so easy to set up and use, you'll have your first meeting running in seconds. Plus, hold as many meetings as you want for one flat rate. Free VOIP and phone conferencing included. Try GoToMeeting free for 45 days. For this special offer, you must visit www.gotomeeting.com slash podcasts. That's www.gotomeeting.com slash podcasts for a free trial. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. talking to five of our listeners and very avid participants in the Paracast forums at forum.theparacast.com. We have Farusha, who is known by that name on our forums. We have Michael, and he's known as Skyler in our forums. We have Mark, who is known as Dusty on the forums. We have John, who is Skunk Ape. And we have Brandon, who is Brandon D. And we're talking about various experiences. Before we get to anyone else's 
any comments about what Mark just told us? Well, I, I actually, quickly, uh, I just want to wrap on John's story because, John, you didn't convey how this episode ended. Did you see this thing? Yeah, yeah, I was going to get to that. Um, after about five or ten minutes of standing there on the side of the road and this going on, um, it, my, my girlfriend was just like, you know, John, get in the car. And I was like starting to get scared at this point, you know. I found myself basically just scared. And I got in my car and drove off. And as I drove off, it never moved. It was still holding its position as I drove off. I just watched it disappear in my rearview mirror. This was like about 10 minutes, is the time that, uh, that it was there. It was 10 minutes or less. Yeah, I don't think it was more than 10 minutes. It could have been yeah. five. John, was your mm -hmm. girlfriend uh, extremely religious? Uh, would she have a reason for not wanting to see the UFO that you could think of? No, she's not religious at all, but her, her last name is Christian, interestingly. But, <laughs> <laughs> but no, we're both pretty uh, agnostic. I, I don't disbelieve anything, but, you know, I don't, I don't, I like to let my, I like to let my thoughts remain more malleable than being religious allows. No, I just wondered about uh, her because she didn't seem to see it or she didn't see, she seemed angry about it. You know, mm -hmm. sometimes things go but against She said someone. she saw it. She's admitted to me a few times that she saw it, but yeah, I really had to pry. And it was just like, she didn't want to talk about it. Hmm. Now, that's um, kind of interesting to me because I've, I've had friends who have now seen me come forward talking about the stuff on the Paracast um, who have sort of hinted to me that they've had experiences, but they won't talk about them. Even though they know I'm open-minded about this, it's almost like they don't want to admit these things to themselves, much less anyone else. Because it is just, I think for a lot of people, it's a little too weird. It's over that threshold where to discuss these things is profoundly uncomfortable because it basically means they have to deal with things that they, they don't find rational, they don't find straightforward, and it makes them scared. And I think, John, the reaction that you had of being scared, I think that ultimately that is a healthy reaction to this. And I get concerned when I hear people talking about these things in ways that, uh, you know, they, they felt like they wanted to go out and hug whatever it was. Yeah, yeah. The first, when I first started seeing these things, I was dazzled by it. It was, it was beautiful. Um, I was very attracted to it, and I'm not sure if they're all the same thing. You know, I don't know if I'm dealing with two different classes of, you know, two different factions of some whatever the hell it is, or if it's all the same thing. But uh, the I've definitely had experiences that were uh, blissfully entertaining, watching these things entertaining huh <laughs> a friend and i actually had a, a whole sky full of these things like put on a show for us out at garner state park well now do tell but that's that's a that's a pretty outrageous statement what happened yeah it is um geez this is going to take a little bit i'll skip the I, I i'd seen one the night before john you don't have to basically make it that short we have a two-hour <laughs> show and i'm sure okay, our well, other guests would be happy to Surrender the chair for a few minutes, okay? Okay, well, we're out of Garner State Park, and I walked out at night. Everybody else in the camp was retiring. It's maybe 10 or 11 at night, and I had a little cooler with four beers in it, and I went and found a nice place in the nice rock to sit on and hang my feet in the stream and drink a beer and just look at the sky. It was just like an absolutely perfect night. I remember having that sense that, I don't know, it's hard to describe a... Uh, but I think it's that thing that's hard to describe that I've heard some other people mentioned where everything just seems perfect. 
and I turned around and there's I see this cluster of uh, three lights in a triangular pattern. And this is in no way like the uh, the black triangles I hear people talking about. This was like three. They were the lights were basically balls that were touching. I would say maybe it it, it would look like three BBs that size, like three BBs together of light, and it was like twinkling, like uh, basically flashing rapidly through every color of the spectrum and twinkling like a jewel. And my first impulse was. You see, like, these cargo cults that worship airplanes in the South Pacific? I actually had it. My immediate urge was to bow to this thing. Was that, did you feel your immediate urge was, uh, you, uh, not not in any way shooting you down or attempting to, is did no, you, no, no, as, as, as you were in a, a, like a party situation, was that, am I right, you had a beer? Oh, yeah, yeah, I had. Yeah, um, you, so you were in a, in a good state of mind. A happy state of mind. And, yeah, uh, yeah, I was. Yeah, I definitely. Had, I had a little buzz kick, and I, I've never had beer that makes me. Uh, <laughs> no, no, you weren't. Out. <laughs> oh, no, I got the picture. Yeah, so that is just just a, a, an observation. Yeah, I, I was. I was in a blissful state whenever I turned around and saw this thing, and I was looking at it for a couple of seconds, and I had the sense that I got zapped in the eyes with some sort of a like a laser beam. I, have you ever been to an eye doctor and had a beam of light put directly up to your pupil and oh, yeah. you can actually see the interior of your eyeball? Mm-hmm. It was like that for a cup, maybe two seconds, just like zzzz. And then, uh, then I, you know, I just sat down and just watched this thing until whenever the, until the sun came up. Whenever the sun rose in the morning, the atmosphere condensed into fog and it just kind of disappeared into the fog. I was going to ask if you got the impression that the beam of light came from the objects. Yes, absolutely, and I felt direct, almost like, I, I don't, it's hard to describe, but there was a, best I can describe it as, as like a psychic connection. I mean, I was definitely aware that it was aware of me. Hmm. Did it cause any dreams? Uh, no, no, I don't really, I don't really recall, because I didn't sleep that night. I stayed up all night looking at this thing. And then the next night, you know, when I was back at camp, I was trying to, ex- I told everybody that I'd seen something, but I was trying to, st- I was trying to rationalize this. And I, was, I was like, I think I saw like a star going supernova last night or something. And my friend Kyle and I were going to canoe down or inner tube down the Frio River the next day. This was on the Frio River there at Garner. And so I told him I wanted to get up at six in the morning and walk out to the same place and see if this thing was still there. Uh, I don't, I don't, I don't own a watch, so I, I borrowed his watch. It's one of the ones that doesn't have any numbers on it. And so I'm, I'm like a kid before Christmas, you know. I can't wait to get up at six in the morning and go down here and show him if this thing is still there. Hmm. And so I wake up and I look, and the hands are both, you know, ones up and ones down, like six o'clock would be. And so I go and wake him up, and we hop up and grab inner tubes, and I take him out to this place where we're gonna wait till the sun comes up and jump in the river, and uh. We get down there, and Kyle's like, you know, damn, I don't feel like I slept at all. And he rechecks his watch, and it wasn't 6 a.m. It was 12.30. <laughs> and so he's he's pissed, you know. He's, he's like, God, I slap you in the face. And, like, right about then, this thing comes whirling up over the horizon. It's the Whenever it moves, it appears to be a tetrahedral configuration of rapidly blinking lights. And whenever it just hovers, it kind of looks like a... Uh, like a fishing cork floating on the water. It's got that kind of a movement to it. 
but then whenever it takes off and moves, I mean, it shoots like a bullet, and right before it does it, it whirls and turns into a solid, solid light ball, and just shoots like a bullet out the end of a rifle, and it leaves these like glowing multicolored tendrils that just kind of fall to the ground, and the, I mean, it literally. We, we, we sat out and watched this. There was only one that got close, but we saw a first, a second one came up, and Kyle was like, how many of these damn things are there? And we looked up at the stars in the sky, and what we thought were stars, it was like they all like changed position, just like in straight lines, probably 20 of like a whole armada of these things. You had and a whole one, fleet. Yeah, and, when, and the one that was getting close to us, it flew down and landed on top of, there's a pr- big prominent rock formation there that everybody call, they call Old Baldy, and it landed on top of that thing, and whenever it was landed, it looks just like a two-dimensional orange triangle. I, I couldn't tell if it was a cone or if it was a faceted tetrahedron, and it, it was orange and kind of glowed like a, cig- a cherry on a cigarette. So I flash my flashlight at it once, and it flashes at me. And then it, I flash at it twice, and it flashes twice. And then Kyle, like, grabs the flashlight out of my hand and pushes me away. And is like, cut that out. You know, he, he's pretty freaked out, but I'm, I'm having fun with this thing. I'm like, this is the coolest damn thing I've ever seen. Uh, I want one of those. <laughs> Ooh, I got to just tell everybody, before we have the delivery man bring a UFO to your front door... Fate Magazine is proud to be celebrating its 60th anniversary and its 700th issue. That's 60 years of bringing you true reports of the strange and unknown. Fate brings you the latest on all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. It's bigger and better than ever. Subscribe now by calling 1-800-728-2730 or online at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. We have Farusha and Mark and Brandon and John and Michael listeners to the Paracast and participants in our forum, and we're hearing John tell us about the UFO that talked back, in a sense, by flashing a light. Yeah. It sounds like Close Encounters a little bit, doesn't it? I kind of looked like the little kid in Close Encounters, when I, and I was his age whenever the film came out, and people would tell I remember people telling me that, you look like the little boy in Close Encounters. <laughs> now, question for you, uh, in the aftermath of this, what, what year did you say this was, this was again? I think this would have been in about 95 or 96. All right. Relatively early in the days of the Internet. Um, I'm guessing you might not have been on the Internet at that point. No, I'm still... This is the first time I've ever been on Skype. So. Okay. All right. So 
had there been any other corroboration of what you've seen, like in the local media or the local press, did anybody else see this stuff? I, I didn't think to investigate it. I'm a, I have lousy investigative skills, I, I imagine. Um, went around blabbing off to everybody. I saw I saw UFOs at Garner. You get used to people just looking at you like you're a nut when you say you saw you say you saw 20 UFOs and watched them all night. Well, I guess what I'm asking, so you didn't look into whatever had been potentially any other corroboration then, but how about subsequently, like, you know, recently, certainly uh, things like the New Fork database is something that can be searched. I mean, there are some databases of sightings reports that you can go look at. Have you made any attempt to see whether... No, I guess I have. Um... It kind of crosses my mind that if I wanted to, I could probably go back out to the same place and it would probably come back. If I was in the... <laughs> That's what I was going to ask. Is it far from you, John? It's about a four or five hour drive, yeah. Oh, right, right, right. Okay. It's out in the te middle of the Texas Hill Country, with the Granite Hills. Curious. Well, you know, certainly on the show we've talked about the idea of being able to have some sort of repeatability of things. And like we know, Ted Phillips is down in this Marley Woods location where supposedly... There's a, there's a large amount of activity going on continuously. At the same time, something that becomes clear is that there's a tremendous amount of stuff going on. Mainstream media like won't touch. Not only will the mainstream media not touch it, but like I've talked about my episode in Caracas, Venezuela in 74 with this cigar-shaped craft and discs that came out of it. And um, I've not been able to find any sort of corroborating reports in any of the known media databases of UFO stuff there's basically no trace of this. So uh, what that kind of indicates to me is that uh, there's a very good likelihood that a majority of the activity around UFO sightings that goes on essentially ends up unreported. It ends up basically in, in the back of people's minds. It ends up as stories that they tell. Um, but there's no attempt to really try to sort of correlate things or, or, or to, to even document them because, again, with a lot of people, I think they end up having an experience like this. And, I mean, you, John, were saying that you were telling people, I saw these things. But for, for every one of you, there are probably eight other people that would see something like that and would just not be comfortable in telling anyone. Well, yeah, I find that in being open and talking about it. That, and a lot of times I can just tell whenever I've been talking to somebody for a bit that they've probably had some sort of weird experience. And uh, it's not too hard to find people that you can dig out something that they've seen that was weird. Or they know somebody that has experienced something they can't explain. Well, now let's talk about that more directly. And I want to ask Michael a question. Michael, elaborate for us. You say that you've talked about on the forums some of what you've experienced um, in terms of personal experiences. One of the topics I did want to talk about with the roundtable today were personal experiences. So assuming that not everybody who listens to the show is on the forums, because we know that's not true, uh, recount to us, if you would, one of the most ex interesting experiences. I haven't had very many. I've never seen a UFO. But in terms of personal experiences, I very definitely had a precognitive dream a few years ago. There's just no doubt about it at all. Uh, I dreamt that uh, I was uh, stopped by the police on the way to work. And in my dream, I saw the cop car and the blue lights. And the next day, it happened to me. And uh, interestingly, I talked to the cop. The cop had stopped me because I did something wrong, but he didn't give me a ticket. And uh, I said, you know, I, I dreamed about this uh, last night. And he just didn't want to hear about it. He kind of laughed and chuckled and put up his hands and, and didn't want to hear about it at all, which uh, I thought was kind of odd. Uh, 
But the experiences I talked about relating to my mother, who was uh, kind of psychic, and she related a couple of interesting statements uh, to me. In one case, uh, she grew up in Gunnison, Colorado, which is on the western slope of the Rocky Mountains. And when she was an adult, she moved down into the big city, into Denver. And uh, my grandfather, her father, was uh, an MD. And uh, he was uh, quite ill at the time. And my mother was staying at the YWCA, uh, which is a very communal environment. And uh, one day, a voice was heard that said, Poor Hopes, I need my medicine. And she heard it heard the voice and everybody else heard the voice and nobody knew who it was except my mother because his pet name for her was Poor Hopes and because she was almost not born is the story behind that and she was able to get him his medicine and everything was okay. Now this was corroborated by the other women in the dormitory at the time and uh, I always thought that was a very interesting story and that she confided in me. Uh, in another incident my aunt, which we called Aunt Sister, uh, died. And I went to my mother because I knew she'd had these kinds of experiences, and I said, did you have any experiences? That's kind of a leading question. But uh, she said, yes, Sister came to me in a dream and said, I just thought I'd say goodbye. So those kinds of instances are very personal, of course, and uh, they're not always corroborated. but. She was very open to that kind of thing. And I'd like to talk just a tiny bit about how people are open or not open, how they can see a UFO or not see a UFO. Uh, my spouse right now is a very rational person who's interested in the real world. And whenever I start getting edgy is when she starts getting uncomfortable because her worldview simply does not allow this stuff to happen. And if she were confronted with evidence that these things do exist, that just makes her totally uncomfortable because she's got this real-world filter. And we've all noticed that people who tend to be uh, left-wing politically uh, will see everything that happens in terms of a left-wing filter, where somebody who is a, a right-wing kind of thinker will see everything that happens to confirm their view of the world. And as someone who is very religious, for example, has a very big filter in terms of the outside world confirming their own beliefs. And I just have this feeling that only people who are open to this kind of thing have a hope of having these experiences. And people who don't want to are not going to because it would be too devastating to them. It's, it's hard to admit that everything you know may be wrong. Hmm. Well, sadly, you just brought up the name of a book by professional moron Lloyd Pye. <laughs> Uh, really? Lloyd Pye has a book called Everything You Know Is Wrong? Yeah, he does. That's, that's we, a, we can start with that little skull that he's been, you know, marking. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was going to say, he rip, is, 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 did he rip that off from the book of the subgenius? Because I just did. Lloyd Pye is not much of an original thinker. I, I, I hate to be going on the personal attack here, but uh, yeah, uh, it's very possible. Farisha, I want to ask you, when we met, you intimated that there was some interesting UFO-related experiences in your life, and I'm going to put you on the spot here. Sure. That's what I'm here for. <laughs> All right. Would you convey one of those experiences to us? Well, um, 
You know, there have been a number of experiences, uh, some of which I know are definitely UFO. And then there are others in, as you would probably say, the gray area. So uh, I'm going to start with what I know was definitely a UFO experience. And um, it happened to me when I was in my early teens, maybe 12. And um, I was coming home from a drive-in movie with a friend and his family, his parents, and I was sitting in the back seat with him, and the parents were in the front seat driving, and uh, we thought uh, it was in uh, northern New Jersey in a lake area, and um, there had been a uh, an accident um, several weeks before where a couple of young men were killed, and when we saw a bunch of people on the road at the entrance to this lake community, we immediately thought that... Uh, Maybe there had been another death by auto or bad experience of that nature. Uh, but we were flagged down by people that we knew that was on a bridge where teenagers hung out, mostly older than myself because I was, I was pretty young at the time. And um, we got flagged down and we stopped and uh, the mom said, oh my God, I hope nobody got hurt. And I just remember her upsetment with being flagged down, particularly. And we got out of, he, the, the gentleman pulled over, we got out of the car, and we saw people pointing upward, and look at that. And what had apparently happened before I got there was something streaked into the sky um, and uh, stopped dead still. So when I got there, I was looking towards the, basically the west, slightly southwest, and um there was this bright light in the sky. It was brighter than Venus, um, and um, it was very gently pulsating, very gently pulsating, and was pointed out to me that there were two other lights that were oh, uh, just a short way away from the main light, and one of those lights was coming back and forth into the main light, like moving back and forth, and joining with the main light and moving out again. And um, it's been obviously a long time since I was 12, but I, I remember vaguely that there was a, a pale color to the secondary lights. Well, I stood on this bridge for anything from five to 15 minutes watching this action in the sky. And there were police there a police, you know, like a little police car uh, with two policemen in it had come there. And um, maybe, maybe 20 people, a lot of whom were older teenagers who would have been hanging out there anyway. And um, they uh, finally, at the end of the, the time, uh, several minutes, uh, both lights, both secondary lights, moved back into the bright, bright major light, and the thing took off. If you would have blinked, you wouldn't have seen it take off into the southwest. It went. It was in the west-southwest, and it took off into the southwest. And yeah, that was... gone really quickly. It was gone like a flash. If you blinked, you wouldn't have seen it. Now, interestingly about that, people that night were marveling over it. They all saw it. Nobody couldn't see it. But as I recall... When one wanted to bring up the situation again with anybody that was there, most of the people seemed a little reticent to remember it. 
um, that was one experience. Now, there was another experience in the general same location um, that may or may not have been UFO-related. Um, it has been remarked to me when I mentioned this to, to other persons that um, it might have been like a cover memory or something like that. I was like hiking um, in the same area on um, uh, Green Pond Mountain, and I was in the valley nearby Green Pond Mountain, and I was younger at the time. I was about, I'm going to say, 10, 11. It wasn't too distant time-wise from the experience. It happened, you know, fairly immediately before. By that, I mean maybe a year before. Um, and we were hiking, myself and two or three other kids of similar age. And um, we were familiar with this area. We went there all the time. We walked around all the time. And um, there were no buildings on this part of the uh, valley next to Green Pond Mountain. In the distance, there was a girl guide camp. But we knew that that was private property, and we never went there. We were good kids, I guess. Well, we were walking in a place where we had been before in a, in a marshy, slightly... Uh, slightly wettish ground, but not a sponge, you know, not completely um, uh, wet, just a, a wet, low-lying area. And we saw a house that was never there before. And it was a human-sized house, but a very small house. And it was like a little cottage. Um, and we walked up towards it, and we all stopped fairly simultaneously. And we looked at it, and I remember noting that there were oddly lace curtains in the window and no roads, no perceivable way that any vehicle could get up to it. And all of a sudden we looked at one another and we ran like the dickens out of there. Hmm. And they, we, we mentioned it directly afterwards, but we didn't really talk about it a whole lot over the course of the summer or when we did other things. We talked about it directly afterwards, and then it was like a, a frightening, frightening. We were kids, you know, it was kind of frightening. But the one thing that we all sort of agreed upon, it was like our idea of where the witch in Hansel and Gretel would live. It was like and, living a fairy tale. Yeah, it was a little like living a fairy tale, but it wasn't. It wasn't ornate. It wasn't like a gingerbread house or anything like that. It was. It was a plain wooden structure painted, and it had lace curtains in the window. And it was so bizarre because we we'd been there before. We'd never seen it before. We'd never seen any buildings in there before. It was a long time before I would ever go back there. I wanted and, to ask you about the aftermath of this, but we're going to split. We're going to leave a cliffhanger for our listeners. Hey, hey, let's leave it with, um, hey, Farusha, I've had almost an exactly similar experience, but it was um, a house, it was Jason's cabin from Friday the 13th instead of the witch's house. Oh, oh boy, oh, that, this is, this is going to be just fabulous. Ladies and gentlemen, you have to realize, I think we've got some of the best listeners on the planet on this show, and we're just really pleased to have this kind of episode, and I think we'll be doing it more often. We have Michael and John and Brandon and Farusha and Mark. We'll hear more from them and about the house that may or may not still be there on the other side of the Paracast. Ray Perkins, a reclusive veteran burned out from the Gulf War, lives tortured by relentless, perplexing nightmares. 
nightmares of a horrific battle in deep space, and of a mysterious woman suffering in agony for her devastated world, a woman not yet born, calling across centuries to him. Then, a coincidence leads him to his destiny, his chance to alter the universe. Attack! Attack! of the Rockwells. The former fiction editor for Star Wars and Indiana Jones, Robert Simpson, writes, The soul of the novel Attack of the Rockoids lies in its heart and passion for building a convincing tale of a love that spans a galaxy. A thrilling story. Attack, Attack of the Rockoids is available now. Read a sample chapter and get a special discount off of the cover price at our website, rockoids.com. That's R-O-C-K-O-I-D-S dot com. Attack, Attack of the Rockwell, a novel in the grand science fiction tradition. Hi, this is Bud Hopkins, and you're listening to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg, David Jedney, and I completely, enthusiastically endorse this program. It's an absolutely great program with an opportunity to stretch out and talk. Welcome back to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Jedney. On the PowerCast this week, we have five listeners. We have Michael. We have John. They sound already like people from the Bible. And Brandon and Mark and Farusha. And Farusha, before we broke for the hourly break, was telling us about the little, I guess we'll call it the gingerbread house, the cottage that you and your friend had seen. Now, did you ever go back to that place to see if the house was still there? Yes, but not the same year. Um, I would go hiking in the summertime there in the general area, I would say once every two weeks or so. And I, w I kind of avoided that specific area for a while. But interestingly, I have looked the place up recently on Google Maps, and I could see that unlike uh, much of the area around it, the place which I believe is the place that this house existed, um, is still not built up, is still not, um, you know, constructed upon. I will make the following statement about this, is that um, this lake area is and was near the Picatinny Arsenal. Um, and um, I have had other people tell me that they have seen things at the Picatinny, around the Picatinny Arsenal. Would you explain for our listeners just what that is? The Picatinny Arsenal is a um, is an army base basically in New Jersey, and um, there are uh, it's a lot over a large area for New Jersey, which is a reasonably small state. It takes up a large area, and um, there are a lot of military people, and there are a lot of contractors there. Um, but there are there is a perimeter area which people can't go on that is wooded. So I would say these experiences took place uh, due north about three to five miles from the Picatinny Arsenal. Um, and I'm kind of interested now in um, taking a walk there at some point um, and um, see if, if there's anything there. But I had gone back, you know, uh, in the succeeding year um, and other years. Not uh, later on, I didn't go back specifically to see the house, but the house was never there again. So it was just that one time. Absolutely, uh. absolutely. And we, what was also interesting about it was that we all of a sudden, all three or four of us, stopped dead still and looked at one another and ran. 
I know exactly. I know exactly what you're talking about. Well, you right. were saying, John, that you had something similar to this happen to you. Oh yeah, we, we had woods in the house. Uh, there's a large patch, a couple hundred acres of woods by the house I grew up in, and we were kids. You know, we had trails. Cut, we'd go out with machetes and cut trails. And we had little rabbit holes and trails all through, cut through the woods, and we're walking through a area that we'd already previously cut a trail through, and there's this little rinky-dink like wooden shack there, and there's an axe leaning against the wall. And uh, I, I was with I, I was with my brother and two other friends, and I, I remember saying, "That's Jason's house," and we just turned around and hauled ass and ran, and never went back to that area. Hmm. All right. Before <laughs> I don't know why somebody would have thrown a wooden. Sh- I mean, in hindsight, it, I, I never thought about it until Farisha was talking here. But it's a I've had a I don't know if that's a uh, some sort of a common template for <laughs> weird experiences that don't get talked about much, or but. Um. Brandon, I, I'd like to ask you, because you've been kind uh-huh. of uh, quietly hanging out in the background there. Um, everybody's sharing experiences. Have any you'd like to share with us? Yeah, I've been I've been trying to think of which one would be a good one. I was thinking, uh, since John described that, that object that moved sort of like a cork and had the spotty lights, um, I had a similar experience that I actually did report to the UFO Reporting Center but um, this was only about uh, a year ago, I guess. Me and my girlfriend at the time were going to a restaurant, and we had reservations for 7.30 p.m., and we were running late. So luckily, I happened to know just about exactly what time it was. It was probably a couple of minutes before 7.30. And we were driving along, and as we were driving, uh, the area of Houston I live in, it's uh, it's definitely urban, but a lot of trees. And uh, I, I'm always looking around in the sky and stuff like that. And I drive along and I look off to my left and I see this bright light in the sky and I sort of bring it to my girlfriend's attention. Like, isn't, isn't that strange? Look how bright that is. And she says, just keep looking at the road because I was just staring leftward instead of looking at where I was driving. So I go a little further. I turn left onto uh, the street up ahead. So now it would be, you know, in front of us and this light is sort of off in front and a little bit to the left and it's gotten significantly brighter and bigger but now it's it's lights all over it and uh, my eyesight is really poor and uh, as I'm looking at it the, the only thought that goes to my head is damn that airplane has a lot of lights on it and I just kept on driving which is really odd considering that I'm always interested in looking at something in the sky that would be strange, but I just sort of looked at it. I remember that thought going through my head and I kept on driving. And I probably would have just kept on driving had my girlfriend not said, what the hell is that? And then I looked back at it and it was definitely something really strange. I, and but she, her eyesight was better than mine, so I was asking her what she was seeing. And she said it was shaped like an egg and it had bands of lights going around it and it was moving really weirdly like uh, like almost like bobbing and it was it was not terribly far away and it was pretty low to the ground and i'd say it was about wasn't quite night it was you know sunset where the sky is dark but definitely something black sort of casts a silhouette against the slightly brighter background and uh and so uh, we got to the next light and i said screw the reservations and i just turned left to follow it where it was going and uh we i drove through the neighborhood to try to get to where we could be right beneath it because it wasn't too far away. And uh, there were a lot of trees, so I was just sort of driving where 
where I thought it would be, you know, just judging from where I saw it. When we got to where I would assumed we would have been right beneath it, we got there and there was there was nothing there. And so I, uh, the next day, I, I think I asked some people, where should I report this thing to? And they mentioned that UFO Reporting Center, so I put in all the details and I sent it in there. And uh, I thought, I'll check and see if anybody else has seen anything interesting. And it was either one day or two days prior that somebody had seen uh, an egg-shaped object in Houston and reported it. So I thought that was pretty interesting. You live um, near where I grew up, Brian. I grew up south of Houston, and I've also seen egg-shaped things. And uh, so, you know the area like um, Highway 36 where it cuts through West Columbia? There's all, all, all the uh, maize fields and cotton fields. Uh, I think I know what you're talking about. Um, a lot of people see a lot of things out there. Yeah, another weird thing is I was talking with uh, with one of my friends, and uh, this was completely unrelated. And him and his friend described that they were driving along, and they saw something in the sky, and they thought that it was the top of a building. And they're like, "Check out that building. That's really cool. The, it looks like the it looks like a disco ball." And uh, and then they saw that it wasn't a building; it was a thing there flying on its own, a spherical thing with lights all over it. But this was many years before. I just I thought that was very odd. It seems like, and the thing you were describing was was Texas, almost like each state state has its own model. <laughs> in that in that in that area right there, there's a, it's really flat too. So you get a broad. It's extremely flat horizon. Yeah. This sort of underscores this idea that uh, of these tens of thousands of reports that we hear about UFO sightings. It really seems to me, and the more time I spend looking into this, this this idea becomes clearer and clearer to me. The the vast majority of UFO sightings don't get reported. The vast majority. And based on the many that are reported, and again, assuming that we can strip out from that uh, unexplained phenomenon of phenomena that are not, you know, paranormal in nature, just that people aren't aware of what they're what they're looking at. Misidentified aircraft, Venus, so forth. If you strip away all of that, and you have, let's say, what I always come back to is the two to five percent of sightings that are potentially anomalous, um, which still ends up being a pretty big number. But then you take all of these experiences that you guys are t- are talking about, just in terms of the UFO realm, and you multiply that by what I'm guessing are tens of millions of people who don't report what they see or like the language barrier issue that you have all these people in South America seeing things and they don't get reported. They don't get reported or, or if they do get reported, they're only in the Latino community. Uh, you know, they're only in Spanish language media and that stuff doesn't make it over to English. And it sort of it's indicates to me that we're talking about potentially very, very large number of anomalous sightings. What clues can we get from that? I mean, this is a, you know, in talking to Jacques Vallée and in reading his works, he comes to the conclusion that that there's a dog in the room. <laughs> Hold on, let me, let me go silence my dog just a minute. Okay. In having discussions with Jacques Vallée about this, Vallée seems to feel very strongly that given what he feels are a large number of sightings, that the quote-unquote ETH, the extraterrestrial hypothesis, almost doesn't fit the evidence in terms of just, if you're talking about extraterrestrial visitations and the difficulty in getting around between stars traveling large distances, that 
the number of sightings that occur don't really fit the idea of creatures coming from other planets specifically. I'm with that. Oh, well, let, me, let me let me finish the question though. Let me, let me finish positing the question. So I want to and I want to go down a list here of people. Let's make sure everybody gets to have their say in this. What is your feeling about what's commonly referred to as the ETH, or and do you feel that a single theory accommodates all of the things that are happening? And I'd like to start with Michael on this one. One of my favorite subjects, actually. I think that the ETH is basically impossible. Uh, there may be uh, one or two kind of thing, but it cannot possibly accommodate the sheer number of sightings out there. And I think that we think of ETH because that's our culture. I remember when Alan Shepard went up. Uh, we'd been to the moon. Uh, we send robots to Mars. Uh, we're just very outwardly focused, space-faring culture wannabes. And that's how we see it. And this phenomena either uh, encourages us to think that way, or uh, we, in fact, are creating that kind of situation in order to accommodate what we've, what we've been seeing. Uh, we've talked about how uh, people in past cultures talk about uh, fairies and little people or uh, big kahunas in Hawaii to accommodate these differences in, in, in what whatever reality we have here. And I think we have a lot to do with creating uh, this part of the reality. That is, it's not a situation uh, where there really is an exterior uh, something that's, that's come from space at all, that we put our own filters on this and we, we think spaceships. Well, we grew up with Isaac Asimov and Robert Heinlein, so of course we do. But there's something... Uh, I tend to think that there's something what I would call interdimensional about this, and I don't even know what I'm talking about when I say the word interdimensional, but it really is pointing to a different kind of reality than the nuts and bolts reality that uh, a lot of scientists and rationalists think about. Otherwise, we'd have a flood of UFOs everywhere. We'd have millions of spacecraft coming into our atmosphere. If, <laughs> if we assume that, that might be the possibility, too. Are you ready to order the official Paracast t-shirt? You asked, we answered. We're now taking orders for the official Paracast t-shirt. It comes in white, 100% cotton. The front of it features the same logo that we have on our community forums. On the back it says, separating signal from noise. It's just $14.95 plus shipping in your choice of sizes. To order the official Paracast t-shirt, here's all you have to do. Visit our new online store at store.theparacast.com. One more time, that's store.theparacast.com. You can use a major credit card or PayPal to place your order for the official Paracast t-shirt. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. We are talking to Farusha, Michael, Mark, John, and Brandon, and we're trying to get their opinions about what UFOs might be. So who wants to jump in with a thought? I'll jump in here. Um, okay, Skylar, what you were saying, whenever you were speaking of interdimensional, that's a, that's a word I, that I have a problem with also because, um, I mean, we basically, I mean, I'm not a scientist, so I'll just keep, I won't talk too much about it, but what I sense is that it's more like different levels of matter 
and there's def- definitely sentient intelligence behind what's going on some of it. But I think it's right here with us. It's right next door. It's like changing the stations on a on, on the radio whenever they come here. Um, I don't know if you could call that interdimensional. That's I want to think of dimensions. I think like sides of a cube or something. You know the the flatland idea. But my sense, and it's just it's just uh, intuitive, is that. Uh, we, we, we live with these things and they just exist in a form of matter that our science hasn't got a grasp of and we don't bump into it. So we don't, we don't bump into it every day. So we don't care much about it. Mark. Yeah. That, that, uh, so many, so, so many, oh, different, uh, different approaches, um, and thoughts bouncing around in my head about the whole thing. But I kind of like what John just said that. I, I too am not uh, really educated in physics, I have a sort of layman's uh, understanding of it. Uh, but the what you're seeming to say, it's what it sounds like to me is like the time, they're almost in a different time stream. If time is all, if you will, like flowing like a river, multiple rivers of time, and it, it may be like a needle on a record that every now and then we skip a track, you know. Um, and pick up on, on, on something that's either happened previously or they, they skip a track and wind up here, for, whether intentionally or, or not. Um, kind of see it that way. I've, I've not had any experiences with them and really haven't focused on it. Usually though that, uh, as to where they're from, what is what I'm saying. I, I'm, I'm reluctant to talk about it in much detail, but I, I have encountered what appeared to be beings with, the, with their own it didn't seem like they didn't come down in a flying saucer and walk in the house. I didn't wake up and it was in my room. There was an overlay of it was almost like being in two places at once or watching two projectors projected on a screen simultaneously and like one brightening more and one dim- and you know alternately brightening and dimming between two separate projections. It was not um it wasn't like the aliens came down and picked me up and took me out of the house. Yeah. It was much weirder uh, and I really don't even know how to talk about it. Yeah. Yeah, a little more anomalous than something that would be considered a linear perception of reality. Yeah, it was Farisha. Yes. I kind of look uh, to several different possibilities. I haven't made up my mind, and I don't know that it's necessary that it is only one thing. Mm-hmm. You know, so um, I would say that it's certainly possible that uh, some of the sightings are um, actual ETH, like maybe if Roswell is uh, real, and uh, that could certainly be an actual ETH. Now, or an ET, H being hypothesis, I'm sorry. Um, there are other ideas, like um, what about time travel? I've thought that through quite a bit, and I am interested in that hypothesis only because um, people have been working on time machines, apparently, and uh, when they do, it involves a lot of um, spinning. And some of the craft that have been seen have been spinning. But the place where I have a problem with that is that in order for physical beings to travel through time, it seems to me to be a very difficult concept only because the heavenly bodies would have been in different places. In other words, if I want to travel back to the year zero AD, the heavenly bodies are in a slightly different place. So how does the physical body 
deal with that? And can you in any way bring the uh, rotation of the universe back to that time physically? Seems to me to be there's a problem there physically for me to deal with that. And then there's the interdimensional versus um, now you're going to you're going to get on me on this, David, because I, I, I'm not speaking in proper scientific a manner here, but the interdimensional idea versus the idea having to do with vibration or frequency. Now, there's one idea. I think that this was something of what John was talking about. Frequency, we see things on a certain frequency. We hear things on a certain frequency. Uh, but there's loads of different frequencies out there that we're unable to process through our sensory uh, equipment. And then, you know, there's what what is called by physicists dark matter and that's supposed to make up a lot of the universe but hello we can't see it so is it something having to do with there now interdimensionally you've got stuff like that ranch the skinwalker ranch where there appear to people to be like holes in the dimension where things lights would come out and beings would come through that hole so do i know exactly i'm not I'm not saying that any of them are wrong or any of them are right, or maybe there are multiple things. Now, listening to the situation about Marley Woods, I was struck by the fact that these smaller orbs were remarkably similar to things in um, British folklore having to do with the fairies and if you go up to um, to Scotland where uh, the the uh, the community um, where they grew the giant vegetables they were seeing I'm trying to think of the name of it I was there Findhorn Findhorn in Scotland they grew all these vegetables there that were gigantic but they also saw these light beings and they associated them with the um, the divas of the individual plant uh, species. So are they earth spirits, those little balls of, of light? I've seen a couple of them in my life. But, you know, there seems to be some different phenomena that we're speaking about here. Mm -hmm. Brandon? I, I think I pretty much am on the same page with the people who are talking here. Uh, as they were talking, I, I guess an analogy sort of popped into my head of fish in a fishbowl and how their biology just sort of restricts them to the inside of the fishbowl but a person can dip in and dip out as they like and it would how that might seem to a fish and yeah, I think, uh i think michelle kako actually explores just that concept in one of his latest books if i'm not wrong the whole idea of how things would look from it's strangely enough a fish's point of view <laughs> of a hand coming and grabbing a fish and pulling it out, and then the fish finding itself in a place where it couldn't breathe. It was like totally freaked out. It felt completely disoriented. And then the fish gets thrust back into the water. The hand lets it go and moves out. And now the other fish gather around that fish. And go, where were you? It's like, oh man, <laughs> that's definitely what I was thinking. <laughs> I, I go and dip my uh, feet in my koi pond, and they come up and nibble on my toes. I, I wonder what they're thinking. I'm thinking, man, this guy tastes salty. <laughs> I think there's some indirect evidence for a non-ETH hypothesis. These guys seem to be particularly interested in our nukes. I mean, no matter what story you hear, whether it's uh, Robert Hastings uh, or Roswell or some of the old contactee stories, they all say, you guys got to get rid of your nukes. And my question is, why would they care? If they came from another star system, they passed a lot of nuclear furnaces along the way here, and yet they seem to be particularly interested in us getting rid of them. And my issue is that they wouldn't care if it didn't affect them. And if it affects them, that means somehow 
They're sharing the planet. Mm-hmm. Well, then we're talking about crypto terrestrials, aren't we? We're, we're sharing a universe here, man. Yeah, but the question would be then, would that have any impact on the rest of the universe? Would nuclear weapons on Earth do that? I had a conversation just this weekend with George Filer from Filer's Files, and uh, he seems to think that the Earth could possibly, I mean, he doesn't say this, you know, absolutely, but he he puts out the hypothesis that the Earth could be like a, an oasis, a place for intergalactic uh, travel to reflect fuel, get some water, um, you know, get some food stuffs of whatever they might require. So uh, while I don't necessarily hold that hypothesis, I think it's, it's worth examining. All right, so we're the way station for the rest of the universe. We have William Burns, the publisher of UFO Magazine, on hand, and he has a special offer for listeners of the Paracast. We are offering six issues for the price of five. Normally, when you send me a subscription for $19.95, a new subscription, you get five issues. It's our introductory offer. But just for our friends on the Paracast and friends of Gene and Dave, we're going to throw in an extra issue and give you six issues for the price of five. That's six issues for $19.99 just for you. How do we take advantage of this offer? There are three ways to take advantage of it. One is, if you're online, go to www.ufomag.com. Hit subscribe when you come to the PayPal page. Just put in under item, Paracast Offer, 1995, and I will know that you get six issues for the price of five, or you could send your check or money order to UFO Magazine, Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, California. That's Ray spelled R-E-Y, California, 90295. Put down your name and your address, and on your name and address label, put down Paracast offer. You can also put it on your check for 1995 in your money order. I will know exactly what it means because I'm psychic, and I will credit you with six issues instead of five for that 1995. Or you can call me at 1-888-UFO. 6242, and I will take your name and address and your credit card and send you six issues for the price of five, and that's how you do it. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. We're also talking to Michael and Farusha and Mark and John and Brandon. This is not a biblical verse, but when I give those names out in that sequence, it seems to strike me that way. <laughs> Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. <laughs> oh, God, we're in trouble now. Well, the thing that uh, by the time this episode airs, people will have heard the uh, discussion we had with Greg Bishop and uh, Paul Kimball and Nick Redfern. And I made a comment in that episode. We're talking about, are we ever going to really understand this? What's the deal with the government secrecy around this? Which is a topic I do want to talk about today with you guys. But um, something that occurred to me, and I said this on that episode, I said, you know, I don't, I don't know that our current level of intellectual evolution as human beings, where we are now in the year 2009, I don't know that we actually necessarily have the capacity to understand what is very possibly the truth behind this. And... Relating that to government secrecy and the disclosure issue, 
Um, I feel very, 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 very strongly at this point, and I have reasons for feeling this way. It's not just intuition that the government won't reveal anything for precisely the reason that they do not understand what's going on. I, I suspect the government has some recovered stuff. They've gotten some stuff. I have strong reasons to believe that. I also believe that they've not been able to decipher, much less reverse engineer, anything that they have. And to, to publicly come out and admit to this is something they simply cannot do. You can't, you can't come out to the world and say, well, here's the deal. We, we've got a, a warehouse full of stuff. We don't know what the hell we're looking at. We don't know where it's from. We're no closer to understanding it now than we were 60 years ago when we started getting some of this stuff. And uh, have a nice day and, and everybody go out and buy, and, you know, be good little consumers. I don't think they can do that. I really don't think they can do that. And addressing for a moment the, the issue of the ETH versus all the other stuff, I agree, Farusha, that uh, it's not necessarily one thing that it's very likely that these things source from more than a single place. But it occurs to me that once you figure out a way to travel the vast distances between stars, that almost by definition, in order to do that, you have to be able to bend space-time. It's the only way to really pull it off um, in, in what I would consider to be a reasonable amount of time. And that then once you accept that, that potential, once you have a, a, a species that is technologically advanced enough to bend space-time, that also, to me, means they are no longer bounded or restrained by what we consider to be three-dimensionality. A successful means to travel between stars means, by definition, that you're now essentially interdimensional. And, and so once you, you go into that place with all of this, now you're so far beyond anything that our current scientific understanding has a grasp of that, like I said, presented with the truth of what is actually going on, I, I seriously doubt we'd actually even be able to understand it. I'm thinking of the, like the, first, the opening sequence of 2001, the, the way the uh, proto-humans reacted to the monolith. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Very good. Yeah. I, I think that, David, if, you, if you're looking at cases where there's trace evidence, right. or if you're looking at cases where there, there could be recovered pieces of stuff, then you're, you are on some level talking about our dimensionality because, sure. um, you know, that just stands to reason, but maybe my reasoning is, is, is two, three dimensional. <laughs> well, no, 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 you're exactly right. Look, once a craft, and this is something that we've explored in recent episodes, when a craft touches down and its landing gear leaves impressions in the ground from which we can derive a mass and weight, then clearly we're talking about something physical, something physical when it lands. But now something, that thing lifts up and now starts to move at high speed, at which point it seems to me, based on the lack of air displacement, that now that that thing is moving, all of a sudden it's not as solid as when it hit the ground. Go ahead, Sean. Um, what, what that's done to me, I, I know what you're talking about. How does this impact reality? And what it's done to me is, is create a sense of unreality. It makes, makes me question what the ground under my feet is that gets an impression lift in it. I, I question the entire validity of material reality based on seeing some of this stuff. Well, there is a certain, and, and you know, when people, you know, people start to talk about that, and this issue of like quantum mechanics, that it, we control the nature of reality. Um, mm -hmm. yeah. I, I, I'll follow that to a certain point, and I give you my my favorite example is 
you're in the car, the car is going 100 miles an hour, and you're 10 feet away from a brick wall. Now, at that point, you can perceive the universe any way you want. If you proceed at that speed into the brick wall in that car, things are going to get very, very painful any moment here. It'll be over with before you feel anything, probably. Oh, yeah. So, so the point is that that is not a set, an issue of perception. That's an issue of hard reality. Yeah. Hard reality. So at a certain point, things come into this focus where, yes. Uh, there, 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 there is stuff we bump into. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But beyond that, you know, if you've got, let, I mean, again, if you've got the ability of taking a craft that weighs three or four tons with some kind of living creatures in it, and now all of a sudden that thing can negate its mass and move through the air without displacing, displacing any air, with no resistance, we're no longer talking about the reality that we consider to be true right, around right. us at times. The, the the maneuvers I saw, the thing I was telling, talking about that I saw, the sparkly thing I saw at Garner the maneuvers that thing made were in no way possible by an object that had mass unless it could negate that mass and it also occurred to me that the object I was looking at didn't have occupants in it but that the object itself was the sentient intelligence that, that that's just a gut feeling it could have had little little bubble headed gray guys bouncing around inside of it but. It didn't. I didn't have the sense that it, it was a craft. Mm -hmm. Other people have reported that. I, I think part of that you have to sort of write off to just the sheer overwhelming sense of seeing something like that and not really being able to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I don't. Have, I don't have it. There's. There's no way I could really. In, in the end, I don't know anything. I'm just describing what, I, what, what, what hit my retinas and my brain interpreted. Right. And I think that's an honest way to talk about this topic. I know that, and you guys have been listening to the show for more than a couple of weeks, all of you. When people get on, come on the Paracast and start making claims about things, that they know what the source of something is, or they know what the nature of something is. There was that guy that came on the forums recently, who, this guy, George Labono. And um, I put up with about three of his messages, and I just cut him off. I couldn't take it. I just, and I realized I was being sort of reactionary to him. And, and since then, he's emailed both Gene and myself trying to be very reasonable, very rational. For some reason, he desperately wants to be on our forums. I don't know why. But he got on. He started spewing stuff. Just like, I, I know what this is because of my thousands of hours of interactions with the aliens. And I was like, okay. Yep. Thousands of hours, and they've explained it all to you. And so you're on here. Why exactly? To convince us. And, and basically, what happened was he started quoting... Uh, the whole list of charlatans that I, I just can't stand as his primary sources for information. And, but the aliens know, I, supposedly told him this, so why does he need yeah. to quote those sources? Well, yeah, logically it doesn't really hold up. And, and again, I mean, I realize that I just, I sort of, I, sometimes with some of these people, I just sort of snap. And it was like, you know, do, do I want to engage in a debate with him? No. Do I want to even subject the forum members to this? Uh, no, because we do have the ability of banning. And you know, people kind of assume that freedom of speech means they can come on private forums. Or even, I, I won't call the Paracast forums private, they're public forums, but they're subject to a certain set of standards, quote-unquote, or rules, or, I don't know, whatever it is we decide we want to do that day, for Christ's sakes. It's our sandbox, what the hell? And I just sort of cut the guy off. Uh, you know, I, I, I mean, I, I guess I'm, I'm being sort of reactionary to this, but it kind of comes back to this problem of trying to sort of separate signal from noise. 
And uh, this guy Lobono, I mean, basically came on. And I don't know, I, Brandon. I was going to say I, I would have, I would have agreed with you in that situation because I think it's, in my opinion, it's kind of rare to have an environment of people talking, none of whom are true believers or died in the wool skeptics, but all people who are just sort of uh, intelligent skeptics who are. And someone who comes in and just sort of bashes everyone or tells everyone the gospel truth, I think they don't really belong in that environment, you know? Yeah, he certainly was a pontificator. And uh, I totally support what you did because I was rolling my eyes from the very first post he did. But it, it strikes me that, that he is very much like our science with a lot of hubris. Uh, in the late uh, 1800s, the Newtonian scientists had decided that they pretty well explained everything and they were just going to dot some I's and cross some T's and they'd be done. And then suddenly Einstein showed up. And now these days, I just read an article, and I think it was New Scientist, where uh, a growing number of scientists are thinking the same thing, that, well, they're closing in on it. They're closing in on reality. And I think to explain any of the stuff we've been talk talking about here, that science needs to take another leap forward, as big a leap as we did from Newtonian physics uh, to uh, quantum mechanics and so forth, and that really we're on the verge of that. Uh, it just hasn't quite happened yet. Well, I, I sometimes think that when people say they're closing in on a full concept of reality, all they're doing is opening another door, which is ten times larger than the door that they already closed. The more you see... Modular the hierarchy. Pardon? Modular hierarchy. Okay. Well, Gene, it's kind of like uh, if somebody says that they found the boundary of the universe and this is all there is that exists in the universe, and somebody else comes along and says, well, there's what's outside the universe then? It goes, bo it goes both directions also. You can go infinitely small too, I imagine. Well, sure. I, I love it when people make this point of, you know, they're trying to say, well, it's as solid as, and they'll smack on a desktop. It's as solid as this desktop. And I look at them and say, uh... That's mostly empty space you're banging on there. Mm -hmm. That's a little. That's a little electromagnetic repulsion happening at a uh, at a molecular level that's going on, an atomic level, subatomic level, even that's happening there. That's kind of interesting that we only interact with the matter that repels us. Is that why marriages often end up the way they do? <laughs> uh, that's why I never got married. It's the leading cause of divorce, man. I've been with the same girl for over 15 years, and we don't even think about getting married. Well, I'm guessing you don't have kids, too, right? Uh, uh, yeah, we have a couple of dogs we call the kids. Yeah, that's a little different. I the dogs, of course, you know, they only live so long and that's it, or you could sell them to somebody. You can't sell the kids because they put you in jail. Well, dogs usually die before they turn 17, so <laughs> you don't have to deal with the stage where you want to kill your kid. Well, also, their teenage years are very short. <laughs> <laughs> God. How do we get on this one? And what's your favorite know, movie? Uh, yeah, let's get away from this. I'm not one to talk to about parenting. Yeah, no, I, I'm I'm not equipped to have that discussion. Am I the only parent in this crew? Oh no, 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 you're not. I have a girl. Okay, I have three kids. Okay, so you basically expanded the population. <laughs> well, anything can happen. <laughs> <laughs> I like that attitude. That's a good attitude. All right, now let's uh, let's heat things up. Least favorite person in the paranormal realm. And Bill Nell. Kind of Bill Nell. That's I, that's a good one. That's a good one, John. Mark. Yeah. Um, oh dear, that's a very difficult one. All right, I think guess about it. Just see, seemingly the, the the particularly Michael Horn, I would say. Hmm. Uh, What's the matter? You don't buy into the Billy Meyer nonsense? 
Oh, absolutely. No, it's, 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 uh, it, it just, just comes across as uh, devious, yeah. to, to say the least. I'm sorry to butt in. I don't, I don't hate Neil so much for his uh, the crappy spews in the ufology domain as much as uh, the, the, the the whole ripping people off on puppies issue. Yeah, that's like, well, I, I, I'm sure that's come up on the forums. That's yeah, them's fighting words. Pretty bad, <laughs> Mike uh, Greer for sure because he's destructive. I think Michael Horn and those people are uh, just kind of silly, uh, but Greer is destructive. Hmm. That's interesting. Um, you're not the only person who feels that way, you know. And you you keep hearing him refer referenced by people who try to make a point of legitimacy of the topic, and they talk. Well, about, if you preface your name with a doctor, yeah, everybody's gonna take you seriously. Not necessarily. I'll give you one example: Doctor Michael Salaf. All right. I don't think anybody credible is taking him real seriously. He's got a doctor in front of his name. Which agency did he buy it from? You know, from from Happy Joy's Degree Mill or something? Did he actually? Oh, I, I, I would call myself Doctor John, but I think somebody already stole that one. Yeah, I, think, I, think, I think a musician has that one. Yes. Brandon. Maybe Bill Nye. <laughs> Bill Nye, the science guy. Yeah, I think I'm. I'm with I, I, I think Bill Bill Nye is doing a great job of discrediting skeptics. Yeah, that's probably a good well, point. Maybe uh, to the people who don't give much thought to it, it just reinforces the idea to not give much thought to it. And uh, you know, they don't they don't really look that deeply into it. So what he says makes sense. You know, Barusha. Well, I I don't like anybody who is a hoaxer. Hmm. I don't like hoaxers. I don't like people who, um, you know, purposely lie to uh, make their ends or to draw attention to themselves. Certainly, this uh, this bill now sounds like a despicable individual. However, I don't personally know him, um, and uh, I was very much turned off by Bill Nye, the science guy, uh, which it just annoys me no end when he um, spoke to Dr. Edgar Mitchell, who, you know, walked. For greater time on the moon, a longer walk than anybody else on the moon, mm-hmm. and one of only a few human beings to have been there, and and somebody who was um, has multiple degrees from MIT and other places, and uh, this Bill Nye, he he spoke to him in a, an incredibly disrespectful way. First, he's a younger man; he should have shown a little bit of respect, and second, you know, he 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 is not that well versed in science. He's mostly a media person. And also an actor. He's not a good actor, but also an actor. Fate Magazine is proud to be celebrating its 60th anniversary and its 700th issue. That's 60 years of bringing you true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. It's bigger and better than ever. Subscribe now by calling 1-800-728-2730 or online at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. Hi, this is Don Ecker, and you are tuned into the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. Hey, let me tell you what. You're going to hear stuff here that you probably won't hear anywhere else. Hear that, George Snorri? 
We're talking with Michael, John, Mark, Farusha, and Brandon. Listeners, all participants in our forums, that's forum.theparacast.com, and there's a link to our discussion forums on the site. If you haven't been there, it's an interesting, fascinating place to be, and I think we have a higher level of discussion there than at any forum dealing with paranormal subjects anywhere. I don't know of anything that's better, and that's not egomania there, because I have no egomania. I am without an ego. Because it took a trip down memory lane the other day, and you know he hasn't come back yet. The ego, he's he's gone. <laughs> speaking of Le- ego, my ego. Speaking of the worst people in the UFO field, and we all kind of agree on a few of the obvious offenders there. What about the people who you think are really doing it? Credit the p- top people in the field, the people who deserve respect, who are really honestly trying to find out what's going on, not sell books necessarily, although they might have books, not do lecture tours, although that's fine if they do it, but just doing solid research to find out what's going on. Let's go the other way around. Brandon, who do you think? Let's see. Who is the, uh, his name is escaping me right now, though I've said it. So let me, the, um, the, the lawyer you guys have had on before and who's coming out with a book really soon. Uh, I mean, historian. Dolan. Yeah. I like Dolan a lot because he he's done a lot of research on the scholarly side, but he also seems open to the weirder aspects, and I like I like those two elements. Okay, Marusha. You know, uh, not to be a brownie, but I think that uh, Gene and David are are amongst my favorite people because I'm always listening to the Paracast. But I also um, I also appreciate Richard Dolan. I appreciate anybody who. Uh, looks at it with an open mind, but with, um, you know, some kind of intellectual thoughts about things. Uh, who was the person who wrote the other big encyclopedia? Uh, the Jerome real thing. Clark. Jerome Clark. Yes, I have one volume of that, and I, I must say that it, it seems quite, uh, quite a lot of work. Quite a lot of work, and I appreciate somebody who's willing to go the extra mile and do some of the uh, kind of research and 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 you know really look into these things. Um, I, I think the fellow who um, is involved with Marley Woods, um, it's also very interesting. My jury's out on that because you know it, who knows, but um, it, it certainly seems quite interesting. Um, but I like people who come to come to the table with an open mind and with some sort of research under their belt. Mm-hmm. Mark, I would say is it is it Ted Phillips, the guy behind Molly Woods? Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, he strikes me as a a good guy, and and his uh, motivation is sound, and the, and the fact that he wants to put it all out for everyone to see as it's happening is is a great thing. And you know, aside from that, also I liked his uh, because he's was had a closed off attitude to the to what he's currently. Uh, investigating before and like you know it took some convincing but he was convinced of something so for a guy who was obviously very well skeptical um to come around to that way of thinking and spend that amount of time and effort not just on that but on, on much of his other stuff he strikes me as a good guy hmm. okay michael i think we have very few to choose from these days uh we don't have very many but the first one that came to my mind was dolan uh hastings done some excellent work and uh valet mm-hmm. hastings i think is really un- uh, underappreciated in many ways and and i have to tell you guys uh there was a flurry of email 
that uh, I won't get to the specifics of it, but uh, in this flurry of email, there was a an email that Linda Moulton Howe had to send to somebody, basically trying to. Well, she said in this email that uh, she didn't feel that Robert Hastings had credibility, that her her primary sources also didn't feel that he was someone who had valuable information. And that, to me, pretty much summed up, at that point, my feelings about Linda Moulton, how it currently stands. Because to, to, to go uh, to, in an email and realizing that, you know, when you put something in an email and send it to someone, it now exists in per- perpetuity. You know, it's out there now, and people can quote it. And she put in this email that she felt that Hastings wasn't credible. And I, and I read that, and I thought, well, that's it, Linda. If you had any hope of having credibility in my eyes, you just shot it to hell. You know? She seems like a really interesting person from the point of view is that, that she seems to span, I've never met her, but she seems to span doing some very good work with kind of going along with stuff that is not um, really viable. She's still you, defending you, that drone crap. Yeah, you, you mean you don't believe in the drones? <laughs> I could tell that was fake. Like, it, it took me about three seconds to say this is uh, not real. Oh, yeah. I mean, and... I, I personally got in all sorts of uh, hot water for going on the record saying these are bad CG renders. This is just nonsense. And uh, these drone fanatics kind of glommed onto my public statement about that and tried to drag me through the mud. And uh, it was just like, look, you know, what do you, what do you, you, you need to be a CG expert to see this is nonsense? I don't think so. You know, and along those same lines, I have to say that um, somebody who was in my gray basket but no longer is. Uh, is Whitley Strieber. Uh, I'm at a point with Strieber where uh, I've read a handful of his books. I've listened to him talk. Uh, somebody on the forums, I forget who it was, had pointed out that um, he had a recent one of his podcasts with Paula Harris and how it was just an abomination. I went and I listened to it, and I was stunned at how absolutely terrible it was, how incredibly ridiculous Strieber comes off as. I mean, he's basically, uh, you know, just just kissing Paula Harris's butt as hard as he could, and I, I found it to be just terrible. I mean, and the guy uh, has this whole sense of just sort of overly, heavily wrought drama to him, where he's and this is amazing, and oh, it's kind of like that George Norrie kind of snake oil salesman kind of mm-hmm. skeevy, just skeevy, and and I thought to myself. All right, that's it. As far as Strieber, as far as I'm concerned, Strieber is is just not credible. Uh, I, he was in my gray box before. Now I no longer buy anything the guy says, and and in many ways that's unfortunate because he's like one of the the most visible people in the field. I think he he has a grasp on a large amount of what's going on, but it, I, I kind of get this. I mean, I mean I'm not going to point fingers, but the, the best disinformation is 99% true. He says a lot of things that pu- have pulled me in and that I can relate to, but then he just like uh, some, something else falls out of his mouth that I, I'm not allowed to uh, <laughs> to say on this program. I think that he's in, into entertainment, and I, I don't think that he's worthless by any means, but I do think that he does this, like, you know, exaggerating, as you were saying, David, you know, the kind of, oh, never before seen, you know, on the face of the earth. And and I, I try to pick out what might be valid from what he has to say, and he, he has stayed on certain political issues to his credit. Continuously, he has 
um, stayed on, on, on message with certain political issues, such as 9-11, for instance, uh, comes to mind. But there, there are a number of things. Likewise, Linda Moulton Howe is a very big in, in the area of ecology. So, I mean, I try to see that people individually have flaws and maybe too credulous and um, in other times maybe too theatrical, but that there could be something there that's worthwhile. And, you know, that's how I see it. I guess it's the commercialization of this topic, I guess. And he's like, I live in Austin. You go downtown, and we have this giant homeless population, and it's everywhere you step, somebody's trying to bum a cigarette or a quarter. When I listen, when I listen to Dreamland, it's what Willie kind of comes off as. He's telling people what they need, what they, what they he's, he writes good fiction, and he's trying to sell it. That's that's what well, I read. He's made millions of dollars, literally. He got a million dollars. Yeah, and he still he's, he still complains like he's broke all the damn time. Fame has made him weird. Well, and fame has a way of doing that to people, I think. And and Farusha, what you said is valid. I mean, you know, whether or not the guy at some point has some real experiences, I mean, it's entirely possible. Um, I think he has. Well, I uh, okay, he has. no, I, I understand that. But in listening to that latest the podcast show of his, in pitching this event he does, which every every ten minutes they're pitching this, come to this special event where Ann Streber will show you interdimensional gecko lizards. Uh, which is where there's uh, some comment about, you know, Streber or Whitley will talk about the beings he hasn't brought up yet. And it's like, what? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I've read his stuff. It's like, I, I, I've lost track of how many different types of beings the guy's interacted with. Kind of like Jim like Sparks, who, you know, he also talks about, yeah, the, the people came from the future to interact with me. Once they realized I was cool and had a fantastic mustache, they came back to... <laughs> interact with me, and it was fun to watch them unfold very lovingly the different, uh, uh, like like money, the different bills from different parts of time to make sure that they had the money from the right time, and I thought, what a load of junk. I mean, come on, just cut it out. And so this thing with streamer, you know, come and hear about the creatures he hasn't talked about yet. It's like, you know, no, I, I just, look, it's one thing to have experiences that you keep close to your chest because you're uncomfortable talking about them. I totally understand that. That's one thing. But to then say, I've tried to talk about all my stuff, but now at this event, I'm going to talk about something I haven't talked about yet. The beings I haven't mentioned yet. Um, <laughs> and all you have to do is buy a ticket. Yeah, yeah. Of course. Uh, that, that just smacks of lies. That's, and that's the only way I can put it. That's just someone who is being a creative liar. And, I can uh, see that sort of... Yeah. yeah, I can see that sort of thing just sort of gradually happening over time you're you're telling a story which may initially have been truthful and maybe not even that detailed and then at some point maybe even unconsciously sort of using your storytelling skills to elaborate on something and then seeing people eat it up over time it might even become more story than real you know brandon i kind of think and this is a thought i've voiced on the show before that some of the early contact claims were based originally on real experiences and then as they got the acclaim, they embellished the experiences. The experiences became more detailed. And of course, in order to get 16 minutes of fame after the 15 are up, you then have to have more experiences because if you've just had that experience and nothing else happened, if there is no further interaction with higher beings or aliens, well, when am I going to do that? I can there goes my that meal ticket. <laughs> you know, so maybe that's why Whitley Strieber is always finding beings that he needs when he needs another royalty check or an, another lecture tour to fund. 
So, hey, who's your favorite alien? <laughs> <laughs> oh, mine is Jar Jar Rains. Oh, stop. Oh, God. <laughs> Definitely Aura. Aura Rains, for sure. Who? Aura Rains. Yeah, Bethrams, Bethrams, Aura Rains. She's a right, Bethram. right, right. Explain that, Michael. Bethram was a contactee uh, right about the time of Adamski, and uh, he met Aura Rains, who was a captain of a scow. He calls it a spaceship that uh, came from the planet Clarion, which is the other side of the sun in the same orbit as Earth. And uh, she spoke perfect English. She was small. She wore uh, a beret at a jaunty angle, and she was named as a co-respondent in uh, Bethram's divorce proceedings. Hmm. <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> I don't think I can go there. <laughs> Favorite aliens, huh? Well, Howard Menger, the late Howard Menger, his second wife Connie, supposedly she was reincarnated from the space woman he met during one of his travels. But on the other hand, Menger also thought that maybe the army, not the Air Force, the army had staged some of these experiences in order to do some kind of test. And he was a test subject. I think my favorite alien would have to be the Flatwoods monster because he was so strange looking. <laughs> the Ace of Spades head. Yeah, and which there's no equivalent story for in the rest of UFO lore, from what I understand. Right. <laughs> One off deal. Gotta wonder about that. And when, when I, I look at that stuff, and something I've talked about in the show before the vast range of different types of craft, type of beings that are seen, to me, it keeps smacking of deception. I keep coming back to that. I keep coming back to something that's trying to make us think something other than what the reality is. Mm -hmm. And it, it appears that human perception is so easy to manipulate, really. I mean, we see what television does between us and, and how it distorts in many ways our, our hard perception of the world. And I start to think, you know, all these different types of beings and um, these, these vast array of craft, I mean, it's almost like either A... Um, Either there are all these different species visiting us, which is a possibility. I don't know that it's a probability. Or B, that there's this one or two core groups, and basically the idea is to keep us confused and to keep us wondering. And something that I've thought about, it, if you can control, let's say, again, based on observational evidence, we see craft making maneuvers that's just, that are just nutty. We see things that, that make no sense. I keep coming back to... If you can manipulate matter to that degree, then how much harder is it going to be to manipulate your visual appearance and make it a, make yourself look like anything? And if you could do that, maybe that Flatwoods thing, that Flatwoods monster was, maybe what people were seeing was not what was really there. Uh, yeah, there are some, some of the reports on the Flatwoods monster described it as there there was something sitting inside of the thing that it, a lot of people reported the you know the uh, spade shaped head thing but a lot of people reported that that was like a uh, uh, cockpit and that there was something else sitting inside of it I, I remember reading that oh you saw men in black didn't you <laughs> <laughs> I, I was thinking about the idea of of you describing sort of uh, craft being not entirely physical and yeah. that if they're in, say, some sort of space where something is not entirely physical, that they're, that they're subject to either manipulation, possibly from either side, from, from the side of the intelligence for purposes of deception or perhaps even the side of the witness, if, if at all our consciousness has interaction with 
that field, whatever you'd want to call it, you know? Well, like Jack Nicholson says, we can't handle the truth, but we can't handle too much more time because we're at the end of this session of the Paracast, a very special meeting of minds featuring people who a lot of you recognize from our forums. Brandon, known as Brandon D. John, known as Skunk Ape. Mark, known to our regulars in the forum as Dusty. Michael, known as Skyler. And Farusha, all joining us this week on the PowerCast for a great session. Thank you all for coming. Thank Good you. to talk to you guys. Yes, yep, thanks thank so much. Pleasure. Good night, John John. All right, see, that wasn't so bad, guys. Hey, neighbors, you can now give us a tweet on Twitter. Check out the PowerCast at twitter.com slash the PowerCast. That's twitter.com slash the PowerCast. Follow us and maybe we'll follow you. The PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in the PowerCast.